Well, good evening. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 19 this evening. We're continuing to examine Jesus' final words, and we find ourselves in John 19 this evening. Of course, a passage about the crucifixion of Christ. Most of us have surely heard of Michelangelo, the famous painter, uh, famous for works such as the Sistine Chapel, as well as the famous statue of David. And as we think about Michelangelo, uh, we know he's famous for a lot of the accomplishments that he made throughout his life. A lot of amazing paintings or statues, things that he created. But maybe what some of us don't realize is there were actually a lot of unfinished works by Michelangelo. In fact, uh, in a church in Florence, Italy, they discovered some of the unfinished works of Michelangelo. And when they compiled them together and counted how many were there, they actually determined there were more unfinished projects than there were finished projects in his lifetime. The truth is we can relate to Michelangelo in that we live in a world filled with unfinished business, unfinished projects, unfinished tasks, whatever it may be. Uh, We go through jobs and we have a project at work and as soon as we finish it, what happens? There's another project waiting for us. Uh, If you're like Roger Radigan who paints, by the time one spot is done painting, it's time to paint the spot he painted before, right? So it's just an endless cycle, never ending. Weekly tasks like doing dishes or ladies who do laundry, you know, it never ends, right? You do the laundry and there's a pile there waiting for you. Life is filled with unfinished work, unfinished tasks. And as we consider that tonight, may we realize an even greater the impact of these words of Jesus that we see here in John chapter 19. Let's read verses 28 through 30 as we think about these final words of Jesus this evening. The Apostle John writes, beginning there in verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, open your word to us this evening. Help us to see the full weight of these words of Jesus, that it is finished. And God, I pray as we look to this good news that we call the gospel, and that's why we can call today Good Friday, Lord, help us to consider where we stand when it comes to our relationship with you. Have we truly received this good news ourselves? So God, I pray your spirit would work in each and every one of us. For those here tonight that have never heard the gospel, I pray that Lord, you would open their ears and their eyes to the truth. For those of us who have heard the gospel and maybe some who have not yet believed, and I pray you'd open their eyes to the truth. God, even us as believers, may you remind us of the good news of the gospel. May you stir us to, to constantly remember the sacrifice of Christ so that we can live for your glory and, and proclaim the good news to those who have yet to hear, those who have yet to believe. So God, do a work in each of us tonight for your glory as we recognize, as we remember 
the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. May you be glorified in our midst tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. It is finished. J.C. Ryle said of these words, It is surely not too much to say that of all the seven famous sayings of Christ on the cross, none is more remarkable than this, which John alone records. In the original Greek, this phrase, it is finished, is actually only one word in the Greek. And not only is it one word, it is not in the past tense or just the present tense. It is the perfect tense, which means that it is finished and it always will be. So Jesus utters these final words from the, Christ, from the cross. And we see in the other Gospels that while they don't record the, this phrase, what we see is that he boldly proclaims these. He, he gets the energy, he gets the nerve up to then communicate this loudly. But what exactly is Jesus referring to that is finished when he says these words? What is the it as we look at it in English? What is the it that is finished? Well, tonight I want us to hopefully fairly briefly examine three ways, three aspects of what these words of Jesus mean. It is finished. Three ways that Jesus has accomplished the work that he was sent to do. The first one, as you'll see there on the screen, And this is really the overarching aspect of what Jesus is talking about, is that he has finished the will of the Father for him on earth. He has accomplished it. This word could be finished, completed, accomplished. And so he has accomplished the will of the Father. This is, again, the overarching idea of what Jesus is talking about. And so the other two aspects that we'll look at actually fit sort of underneath this first point, but... When I was taught how to preach, and and if you were taught anything about outlining, you don't have a first point if you don't have a second point, right? So I didn't want to have a bold point and then a couple subpoints. So they're all given to you uh, together here. But the will of the Father is what Jesus has come to accomplish and what he's finished here. We see this throughout John's Gospel, John 4, 34. Right after talking with the woman at the well and seeing uh, her faith and seeing her go and tell the others to come and to hear, his disciples return And they're there to bring him food. And Jesus says this in John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I am come not on my own accord, but he sent me. And in John 17, 4, we looked at this a few weeks ago. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So we see this idea throughout John's gospel building that Jesus has come for the purpose of completing the work that God has sent him to do to finish his will. We don't have it recorded here in John, but in Luke's gospel, as Jesus is on the cross or just prior to the cross, when Jesus is praying in the garden, what we see is Jesus pray that famous prayer where he says, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, his focus has been to accomplish the work and will of his Father. And so as he shouts triumphantly from the cross, it is finished. It is in the sense of having done so, having fulfilled the will of the Father, having completed the work that he was sent to do. But the scope of God's will goes back way further than the beginning of John's gospel. 
Uh, As we see here in verse 28, look at verse 28 again. John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then we see in parentheses, if you have an ESV version, almost a passing statement, he said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Here we see prophecy again being fulfilled by Jesus. This is a reference likely to Psalm 69, 21. Where the psalmist says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. If we, looked at, if we had the time to look at all of John chapter 19, what we would see is over and over and over again, there's mention of this happening to fulfill what the prophets prophesied of. We could look at Psalm 22 and see the fulfillment of Jesus and being crucified. We read it earlier, Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy of the Messiah, who Jesus was, being crushed. And no matter how often we read that passage, I can't help but think, how is that possibly written thousands of years or hundreds of years prior to Jesus' crucifixion? It's so vivid. It's so accurately describing what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So we see these prophecies being fulfilled over and over again from the fact that his clothes were uh, not torn. They, were, they cast lots to divide it up from his bones not being broken to him being pierced, all these things Jesus fulfills just in his crucifixion. And we could look at all of Jesus' life and see the prophecies that he fulfilled. But one of the most eye-opening prophecies of Jesus' death was what we read earlier in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And this verse, every time I read it, is amazing to consider. Isaiah 53, 10, in prophesying about the Messiah, we read it earlier, but it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus' fulfillment of these prophecies demonstrate the reality that his purpose in coming and dying was to accomplish the will of the Father. And in verse 28 that we referenced before, It's almost as though as he's on the cross, there's one last prophecy to fulfill. It's as though Jesus is through his life and through the crucifixion has checked the boxes, fulfilled that one, fulfilled that one, fulfilled that one, and there's one left to fulfill. And so, as John says, in order to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. So they would give him this sour wine. So we see this prophecy, these prophecies in the Old Testament prophets being fulfilled, but truthfully, to really see the full scope of what Jesus had come to do in accomplishing the will of the Father, we've got to go even further back than the prophets. In fact, we go back all the way to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. And shortly after Adam and Eve's sin against God, which, of course, plunged mankind into sin, God declares in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the moment sin enters the world, God is there to say, but my will is that the head of the serpent is going to be crushed. But we still haven't captured the full scope of God's will that Jesus had come to accomplish. Because even before sin, even before creation, this is the plan that God has in place to redeem the world. 1 Peter 1.18-21 through 21. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And listen to this. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So understand the magnitude of God's will. This is not just something that started when Jesus' life and ministry started. This is not something that just the prophets got a a glimpse of. It's not even something that when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, okay, I've got to develop a plan and figure out how to get them out of this mess. This is the will of God from before the foundation of the world. Before God speaks a word of cre- in, into creation, he has this plan in place. And so Jesus here is now professing that this will, this plan of redemption that has been taking place since before the world began is finished. He's accomplished the will of God. He's accomplished the work of redemption. All of history has been progressing to this event when Jesus would suffer on the cross for the sins of the world, redeeming mankind to the glory of God and finally proclaiming loudly, it is finished. We see in verse 30, after proclaiming this loudly, Jesus gives up his spirit, meaning that he willingly laid down his life in obedience to the Father. Again, as he's seeking to fulfill the will of the Father, what man is doing to him is not outside of God's sovereign will and sovereign plan. In fact, prior to the crucifixion in John 10, Jesus said in that passage about Jesus being the good shepherd, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So Jesus is saying, and we see it in this verse in verse 30, that he's laying his life down. Why? To accomplish the will of the Father. Gary Burge says, this confirms the sense we have seen throughout the Passion story, that here Jesus is accomplishing what he intends. He's not a victim, but a servant doing God's bidding. This is not a cry of desolation, at last it's over, but an announcement of triumph. It is accomplished. Jesus is not just some revolutionary who had a bunch of uh, crazy ideas and they murdered him for it. And he's an example of, oh, you just follow your passions and buck against the crowd. And even if you die a martyr's death, he's not just an example in that way, right? His death was for a purpose. It was to accomplish the will of his father. It was not taken from him. He willingly laid it down. God's sovereign will is being accomplished by Jesus and even by those who crucify him. I love this verse in Acts 4, 27 that looks back to the cross. As Peter is boldly proclaiming the gospel, he says this. Or is there, this is after they proclaim the gospel, after they've gone to jail. They've been released and they pray to God and they pray this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, why? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God's will is being fulfilled as Jesus dies on the cross. This is exactly what God had planned and purpose from before the foundation of the world. So as Jesus dies, he can triumphantly proclaim about the will of the Father that it is 
finished. So again, while that idea of the will of the Father is the overarching idea, the next two ideas I want us to see are aspects of what Jesus has finished really fit under the will of the Father and the plan of redemption. Now, there's two aspects I want to look at further. The second one is this. What has Jesus finished? The wage that was required. What has he accomplished? He's accomplished paying the wage that was required. We know if, if you've read Scripture any amount of time, one of the most famous verses in the Romans Road, Romans 6.23, it tells us the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. This isn't just a New Testament reality either. In fact, from before the very first sin of Adam and Eve, we see that death is the punishment for sin that God tells them. He says, if you eat of the tree that I've told you not to eat of, you will surely die. So we see that the punishment for for sin is death. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed, they did die. That day they died spiritually as they were separated from a holy God. Their relationship with God was broken. They saw their nakedness. They saw their shame and their guilt. And of course, hundreds of years later, they physically died. And as their descendants, we inherit their sin nature. We inherit that brokenness. We inherit being separated from God as sinners. And as sinners, as Scripture tells us, we are deserving of death. That's the wage for our sin. But we see in God's grace and God's mercy, even in the immediacy of Adam and Eve's sin, what does God do? He clothes them. And what does He clothe them with? They were seeking to clothe themselves with fig leaves that would shrivel up when the sun came out, that wouldn't really clothe their nakedness and their shame. But what does God do? He clothes them with animal skin, right? What would have had to happen for that animal skin to be provided? Death. And so we see this idea of sacrifice from the very onset of sin throughout the Old Testament, this idea that sin requires death. Even before the sacrificial system is put into place, we see, in fact, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And what, what do Cain and Abel do? They come to bring their sacrifice before God. And Cain brings some fruit from the ground, and his sacrifice is rejected by God. But Abel brings an animal sacrifice, and his sacrifice is accepted. We see it in the story of Noah, where he's told to take animals Upon the ark, not just two, but seven of certain kinds of animals for a sacrifice. We see it in Abraham, where he's making sacrifices, and one day he's asked to sacrifice his promised son Isaac before God intervenes intervenes and provides a ram to be sacrificed instead. We see it throughout the lives of the patriarchs, even prior to God giving the law to Moses. We see it in the story of the Passover, where God's people are in Egypt, And God's going to deliver them. And the last plague is he's going to strike the firstborn of every person and every animal down in death. And what is the provision that God gives to his people? If you will take a lamb and you will take the blood of that lamb and you'll spread it on the doorposts of your house. And when I pass through, again, when I pass over, then I'll pass over those who have the blood on their doorposts, right? Those who are trusting in the sacrifice, trusting in the provision and obedience to the Father, And then when God does establish His law, we see that idea of sacrifice for sin. There are certain sacrifices, animal sacrifices, constantly in the Old Testament. The priests continually made sacrifices to seek to atone for the sin of the people as their hands were placed on the head of an animal, as 
as in a sense to transfer their sin and their guilt to that animal who would then be, be killed for their sin. We don't live in that day and age, but can you imagine the vivid picture if every time you sinned against God, you had to go get an animal and you had to place your hand on that animal and essentially condemn it to death because of your sin and then watch this animal be sacrificed? We would understand a little more so than we do now that the wages of sin is death. We deserve death because we've sinned against a holy God. And so we see these sacrifices in the Old Testament. They go on for hundreds and hundreds of years under the Old Covenant. Hebrews 9.22 even tells us, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But every single one of those Old Testament examples of sacrifice for sin finds their completion in Jesus and in His sacrifice. All these Pictures of sacrifice in the Old Testament, going all the way back to Adam and Eve and being clothed, back to Isaac going up the hill, and instead of him being sacrificed, what does Abraham say before they go up to the hill? God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. All those are a shadow of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. These sacrifices were never meant to be an end in and of themselves, but to be a shadow of the sacrifice of of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus for sin. That's why John the Baptist proclaimed of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, John here gives us a detail again that we might overlook if we're not familiar with the Old Testament. But in verse 29, look at that verse again. He says, after Jesus saying, says, I thirst, John says, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So we read that verse and we probably don't think much about it, but here's the amazing thing that we may overlook is that that hyssop branch that was used to lift the sponge up to Jesus' mouth so he could proclaim, it is finished, is the same branch used to spread the, door, the blood on the doorpost in the Passover. So all those are pictures of Jesus' perfect sacrifice to atone for sin. It's also worth noting as we look at that verse that this sour wine that was given to Jesus was not the wine that was offered to him prior that he refused. That was a wine that would have sought to deaden his senses. And of course, Jesus wanting to bear the full weight of God's wrath for sin, not to lessen that by any stretch, refused that wine. This is a wine that would not have done so. It would have actually been more life-giving, more reviving, And so he takes that wine so he can proclaim finally, boldly, that it is finished. So we see sin deserves death because sin is an offense to a holy and just God who must punish it. And the truth is today that if you want to pay the wage for your own sin, then it will require eternal death, bearing the wrath of God forever. Now, you may say, well, that seems a little harsh considering our life is 70, 80 years. Does 70, 80 years of sin really warrant an eternity bearing God's wrath? But the reality is it's not the amount of time spent sinning. It's who we've offended, who we've sinned against. And because we've sinned against an eternal, holy God, the wages of our sin is eternal death, bearing His wrath for eternity. So that's the wage of sin that's required. And if we 
were to pay that wage ourself, it would mean an eternity separated from God, bearing His wrath. But the good news of Romans 6.23 is that it doesn't stop with the wages of sin is death. It continues to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, being God in human flesh, can pay the eternal penalty of our sin because His life has eternal value. So our punishment is eternal damnation, and yet Jesus, having a weight of eternal life, being that He is God from eternity past, can bear that wage here on the cross. He can bear the full wrath of God in a moment for your, your sin, for your sin and my sin. And that's exactly what he accomplished through his death on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, very familiar verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, being eternal God, being perfect, takes our sin upon Himself. And He bears the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin, and for the sin of everyone in the world. Jesus' sin, Jesus' death for the sins of the world puts an end to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which can never truly atone for sin. It can only cover sin temporarily. And so, Jesus' sacrifice finishes it, right? So as he's proclaiming, it is finished, it's in the sense that the payment is paid, right? Your debt is paid. The wage of sin is paid in full. No more need for sacrifices. This sacrifice is once and for all. Hebrews 9, 25 to 28. I love the book of Hebrews, and I'll reference it a couple times tonight. It's because In the book of Hebrews, there were many professing believers who came from a Jewish background that wanted to run back to the law. They wanted to run back to what they were comfortable with. They wanted to run back to seeking to work and to earn their salvation. And the author of Hebrews says, leave that behind, right? Jesus is better than the law. He's the fulfillment of that. He's the substance, and you're wanting to run back to the shadow. And so Hebrews constantly tells us about the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for us. In Hebrews 9, 25 to 28, I love these passages. It says about Jesus that it was not, uh, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So he's saying this is not Jesus having to be that sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament that would have to be sacrificed every single time we sin. But he says this, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews 10 goes on to talk about this reality of the finished work of Christ. They say every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is why Jesus in his final breath can shout victoriously, It is finished. All the sacrifices of hundreds of years are fi- find their completion in Christ. They find their end in him as he bears the wrath of God against the sin of the world once and for all. There's no more need for animal sacrifices. There's no more need for human effort for sin, to atone for sin. The wage of sin is death, and Jesus dies in our place, bearing God's wrath so we don't have to. There's one last aspect of Jesus' words, it is finished, and what it is accomplished, and it's this, the work that was necessary. Jesus has accomplished the work that was necessary. Not only is this a proclamation that the price of sin was paid, but these words, it is finished, are a proclamation that the righteousness required by the law was also fulfilled by Christ. So it's not as though Jesus says, okay, I'm going to die for your sin, and I'm going to get you back to even. Okay, you you had this huge debt of sin, and I'm going to put you back to even, and now just don't screw up. If you just go through life and be fairly good, then you'll get there. No, Jesus doesn't just pay our debt. He gives us his righteousness. Hebrews 12, 14 tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And throughout Scripture, we see God's command to be holy, for He is holy. Holiness is the standard. Perfection being set apart. Holiness, righteousness, perfection is the standard. And we all fall short of that perfect standard. For centuries and centuries, while these sacrifices were going on, people were seeking to be justified by the law, by keeping the Ten Commandments and keeping the rest of God's law. They were trying to obey perfectly. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is even the giants of the faith, like Abraham and Moses and David, were men who fell far short of perfection. Men who sinned. Men who were not holy. And so we see the law was never meant to be the means by which you and I were made right before God. The law was simply meant to demonstrate to us that we cannot meet God's standard of perfection, that we all fall short. Romans 3.20 says this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified or made right in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians tells us that the law was our guardian to bring us to Christ. Okay? The law was not meant to be something that, okay, we've got to obey this perfectly in order to be right in our standing before God. The law was meant to demonstrate that we fall short of God's perfect standard, that we cannot live up to His perfect standard in our own strength. And so after centuries of men and women falling short, now Jesus meets that standard perfectly. Jesus lives that holy life that none of us can live. He perfectly obeys God's law. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He did what Adam could not do, and what you and I cannot do. He perfectly obeyed the Father and lived a sinless, righteous life. 
And he proclaims in Matthew 5, prior, of course, to his crucifixion, not long after his ministry began, Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus' words here, referring to that accomplishment, it is finished. God's law has been obeyed perfectly. Jesus has lived a perfect, righteous life. John Phillips says, every jot and tittle of the law, every word and deed, all that he had been given to do while on earth, finished. And the beauty of this is that through his death and resurrection, by God's grace and through our faith, that righteous life that Jesus lived can be applied to our life. That's the second part of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we read. That God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. The righteousness of God in him. This is the beauty of the gospel. This verse is so amazing just to wrap your mind around. The truth is we are the ones who live the sinful life. And therefore, we are the ones deserving of eternal death. And yet Jesus is the one who lived a perfectly righteous life and therefore should experience full fellowship with the Father, with the Holy Spirit for eternity. And yet, what does Jesus do? He says, you know what? I'll take your sinful life upon myself. I'll pay the penalty that you deserve. But not only that, I'm going to, in exchange, give you my righteous life. It's amazing what Jesus has accomplished as he dies on the cross, as he proclaims, it is finished. It's a proclamation that sin has been paid for and that the work of righteousness in his life has been completed. And this is why we can call the darkest day in human history Good Friday, because Jesus accomplishes the work of redemption. So we find here the magnitude of Jesus' final words. It is finished. The will of the Father is finished. The wage that was required is accomplished. And the work that was necessary is complete. And so today, Jesus offers all of us an invitation in light of His finished work on the cross. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 Jesus says this, Because the work is complete, Jesus offers this invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because the work is finished, we can rest by faith in what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus finished the work. What does Scripture tell us? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. There is rest at the end of the work being finished. And so Jesus offers us that rest today. To rest from our striving to try to earn God's favor. To rest from our seeking to atone for our sin and for our mistakes. He offers perfect rest by His grace if we will place our faith in Him. Hebrews 4, 9-11 extends this invitation as well. The author of Hebrews says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
So they say, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So as I close this evening, I want to ask one final question. Have you entered that rest? Have you rested in the finished work of Christ? As I mentioned in my introduction, we live in a world of unfinished work. And therefore, we live in a constant state of restlessness, right? Knowing that I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And if we're not careful, that can carry over to our spiritual life. And we can live each day as though, oh, I I messed up. I've got to somehow demonstrate to God that I'm sorry for my sin. I've got to make up and atone for my sin. Or I've got to try harder and do better and try to earn his favor. This is not what Scripture's teaching. Scripture's teaching that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. And that when we do so, He gives us the power. He gives us the ability to walk in obedience with Him. To fulfill the works that He desires of us. So instead of feeling crushed by the weight of our sin and our shortcomings, may we take up this invitation to rest in Christ. The gospel offers all of us to rest in the finished work of Christ by faith. This may seem too good to be true. And so we feel like we've still got more to do on top of what Christ has done in order to be made right with God. Right? Well, yes, Jesus died. He did some of the work, but I've got I've to do more. Right? The Mormons actually teach that it's God's grace after everything we've done. That's not what Scripture teaches. It's God's grace, period. It's God's grace by being accomplished through the finished work of Christ. When we seek to add our works to the completed work of Christ, whether we realize it or not, do you know what we're saying? It's not finished. When we try to add our good deeds, thinking that our favor before God can be increased, we're essentially saying, it's not finished. There's more to be done. We've got to do more. But R. Kent Hughes says, because He paid for our sins... We must come to Him empty-handed. To come to Christ with some of our own work or goodness in hand is to commit the infinite insult. If we stop and think about it, if we could be good enough to earn God's favor in the first place, then why would Jesus have to come and die on the cross anyway? In fact, Galatians 2.20, Paul says that, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So when we think that we can earn God's favor through our works, we essentially look at the sacrifice of Christ and say, you know what, Jesus, I'm thankful you died, but you really didn't have to because I can earn my way. It's an insult to God's grace and God's gift. So we were saved and made right with God, not by our works and deeds, but by God's grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that by grace you've been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Nothing we can ever do can earn God's favor, can meet God's perfect standard. And therefore, we have no hope outside of trusting in the finished work of Christ by receiving the gift of grace. I want to read very quickly. Uh, as, as this week went on, there were, of course, several hymns and different songs that popped in my head, but today this song popped in my head, and I remember singing it, uh, I think it was at the IFCA convention last year, and just being impacted by the magnitude of these words, but this is the truth of how we come 
to the Lord. It's the hymn Rock of Ages, and it says this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. The author goes on to say, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So have you come in that way? Have you come empty-handed? Have you come with nothing in your hands? Nothing to offer? Because the work is finished in Christ. If not, then He calls you today to come and to find rest in Him because it is finished. He has finished it. If you have trusted Christ by faith, if you have received that rest and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus and you've trusted in the finished work of Christ, then this is a reminder that we all need from time to time because truthfully, we live our life in a constant state of restlessness, even as believers. It's easy, even in our Christian lives, to forget the finished work of Christ and to slip back into feeling like we have to work for our salvation or work for God's favor. In the Exalting Jesus in John commentary, they say this, the moment you stop believing that Jesus finished salvation is the moment you'll start working for your salvation. You'll wonder what activity you need to do to keep God in your favor. When trials come, you'll wonder if it's because of what you've done. Your relationship to God will become a checklist of do's and don'ts. You see how this changes your relationship with God? If He has done everything to secure your salvation then you will relate to him as the child of a gracious and giving God. But if you need to do something, if his view of you is based on your performance, then that relationship of love and freedom becomes one of guilt and fear. You'll be plagued by worry and doubt about your standing with him. You'll wonder if he's happy with you today. As a Christian, your standing before him has been settled by the blood-soaked sacrifice of Jesus. Your hope and confidence must never be in yourself. In what you've accomplished. It must be in Christ and what He accomplished for you on the cross. J.C. Ryle says, May we lean back, or he says, We may lean back on the thought that we have a Savior who has done all, paid all, accomplished all, performed all that is necessary for our salvation. When we look at our own works, we may well be ashamed of their imperfections. But when we look at the finished work of Christ, we may feel peace. Unlike Michelangelo, God is painting a masterpiece. He's planned it from before the foundation of the world. And here in this statement of Jesus, the masterpiece of His redemptive work is complete. It is finished. And you and I get to be a part of that masterpiece if we will simply trust in the finished work of Jesus. And that statement that it is finished. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the reality of your word. The reality of this statement of Jesus that it is finished. The work is done. God, help us today to enter the rest that you provide. To receive by faith your gracious gift of eternal life, of 
relationship with you. God, we know that it's not our works that save us, but God, when you do save us, we thank you that you change our heart. You give us a new desire. You give us the ability through your spirit that dwells within us to live out in obedience what you've called us to do, not in order to gain your favor, but God, because we are in Christ. We're not working for salvation, but from salvation. So God, help us to wrap our minds around this finished work of Jesus as he pays the penalty of sin, as his righteous life is offered to us in exchange for our sinful one. God, I pray today if there's anyone that has yet to put their faith in the finished work of Christ, that today would be the day that they enter the rest that you offer. God, for us as believers, help us to remind ourselves of this each and every day, not to slip back into our old ways of seeking to earn your favor, but to rest each day in the finished work of Christ so that we can, by the power of your Spirit, walk in obedience to you for your glory. Scott, we thank you for the celebration of the cross today, and as we come to the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ in communion. Lord, help us to quiet our hearts, to examine ourselves. And Father, draw us to where you desire us to be. We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.